What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Nev Jones. Nev is a psychiatric anthropology interdisciplinary researcher. She's a postdoctorate fellow at Stanford University and the founder of Chicago Hearing Voices and co-director of the Lived Experience Research Network. Uh, Nev has been diagnosed with schizophrenia and lives with altered states experiences that would traditionally be called psychosis. So welcome to Madness Radio, Nev Jones. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Yes, and we were struggling with your bio because so much of your work, and I think that's one of the things that is so interesting about your work, is really questioning the language that we use for these experiences and how they don't just fit into simple boxes that we can't really call these things altered states or psychosis or voices or unusual beliefs, that actually there's a whole range of diversity for each person, and so fitting it into a little soundbite or a little one or two word description doesn't quite work. Absolutely, I think um, the language that we have at our disposal to describe and, and express these types of experiences is extremely impoverished. So if somebody says that they live with experiences that are altered states and traditionally be called psychosis, that's kind of a mouthful, but actually for me, it's the beginning of a, of a conversation with people, of a dialogue with people. And you and I also have a lot of parallels with our own process around these experiences, and that's one of the reasons I am so interested in having you on the show today. And both of us grew up with family members who have extreme experiences that got diagnosed as, as psychosis. Is that right? I mean, my, my father and also your mother, is that right? Right. So I think for, for much of my childhood and certainly my adolescence, I had this opportunity to kind of really think about what madness and psychosis and a lot of these experiences are and what they mean with respect to another person, with respect to my mother, and really thinking about that from the outside. And then it was only later, of course, that I experienced psychosis or these types of experiences myself. And I think that's made me very aware also of the differences between viewing psychosis or madness from the outside versus from the inside. Now, my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but just to say that doesn't even begin to touch on what his life has been like. I mean, he's a survivor of very severe trauma. He's a Korean War survivor and was in prisons and a survivor of torture. And yet calling him a trauma survivor doesn't start to get at what the experience of living with him was like because he was a very loving, caring, thoughtful man sometimes who was also tormented by states of incredible rage and anger and fear and inner worlds that he's never really even talked with anybody about. And so what was it like for, for your mother? What, what was it like living with her and growing up with her? Well, in my case, it's sort of multi-layered in, in an even more intense way than just my mother because her first husband, and she got married when she was very young, she was 17, and her first husband 
was actually a philosophy graduate student who's older than her, had a very serious psychotic break, ended up institutionalized as far as we know for, for decades, um, now lives in a, in a group home. And so very, very early on, I remember her telling my brother and I stories about about him. So there was this sort of image of the mad philosopher who we'd never met. Um, and he was also a frightening figure in my early childhood because he'd been very violent and had tried to kill my mother. And then she slowly slipped into her own version of madness or altered states. And I think you know, his trajectory was different to her trajectory and both of them very different to mine. So in my mother's case, she went a very long time without actually being formally treated within the psychiatric system. She's never taken antipsychotics outside of periods of, of inpatient hospitalization. But she has very severe ongoing um, symptoms that really are not in any way episodic. So they're happening on an on a ongoing basis. Right. And what would clinically be labeled as formal thought disorder, meaning that the entire way she processes language and expresses herself is pretty radically different from the way that, that we're talking to each other right now. The logic that sort of drives her conversation, what it is she wants to communicate, is very, very different. So she wasn't having these experiences when she was with her first husband. They developed afterwards, and so that right. must have been very upsetting for her. And then you heard stories about her previous relationship and his psychotic break. It's almost like he starts to haunt your family in the sense if he's if he's off in some institution and you're hearing these scary stories and that he had tried to kill her. Right. She was, yeah, she was frightened that he would find out where we lived and, and you know, maybe come and, and kill us or threaten us. And so there was definitely this sense of, of fear in terms of thinking about him. And I think for a long time growing up with my mother, I didn't even recognize um, a lot of what she was experiencing and beginning to express as madness or craziness or insanity. He was sort of the crazy one. He went through a psychotic break. What was that like? I mean, do you have any sense of what it was that he was going through that led him to be institutionalized for the rest of his life? Yeah, I actually have um, his journals that he was keeping during the period leading up to and sort of immediately past the quote-unquote initial break. And he was very definitely, he was hearing voices. Um, he had some very intense beliefs about the potential to sort of radically, in a deeply spiritual way, transform the self through sexuality, um, through entering into the bodies of women, but he meant that metaphysically, not physically, by gazing into women's eyes. His journals are actually sort of pretty incredible in terms of conveying this sort of slow development of, of these ideas, which then he became sort of completely entrapped in and, and obsessed with. Do you have any sense from reading his journals when things started to turn violent for him, when he started to go into a scary place? 
Right, and that's not at all apparent in his own um, journals and writings, actually. Um, the, the sort of violent side of, of, of things is really only apparent through my mother's stories and through her experiences. And she was, you know, in many cases, really victimized by him. And what did your mother tell you about him and about why he went into this state or what, what his madness was about? Were there stories that she sort of related about her understanding of it? It was complicated because on the one hand, um, probably the, the, the single sort of you know episode that she talked about most frequently was him telling her that God or that voices had told him to kill her. But at the same time, she always described him to us as this genius. He'd studied math at Harvard, I believe, and then sort of transferred to philosophy. So there was this there was this romantic side of the whole story, and then this very, very violent and frightening side of it. And then later, she developed her own madness or altered states. How did that emerge? And do you think that there's a a connection or a relationship between those things? It's really difficult to say. There's certainly a relationship to the extent that she seems to have been very traumatized by the experience. Um, but her own experiences were so different. Um, she's never acknowledged hearing voices, for example. And her altered beliefs or unusual beliefs have revolved around implants in our dog in different parts of her body. Our house was wired and then later on really um, developed into, again, what would be labeled formal thought disorder for which we really don't even have an alternative vocabulary. She'll connect words on the basis of sound similarities instead of meaning so she'll leap from this person called timothy to another timothy to another timothy or the word green as it appears in all kinds of different contexts and so instead of following through a thought in the way that um, that you and I would, she's she's following a chain of, of really sort of sound similarities. And then sometimes she lives with these experiences, and then sometimes it gets her into trouble in some way, and she ends up in the hospital. Is that what happens? Yes. I mean, I think my family, her parents were actually very, very hands-off. She lived with them for a number of years. They've now passed away. They had to reach a point of real desperation, I think, before they even considered trying to involve sort of formalized psychiatric help or seek intervention. And even that, usually, if she did end up in the hospital as soon as she was out, they wouldn't insist that she see therapists, that she continue to take medications, anything like that. So they were very, very um, hands-off. You know, it's been this way for, for decades now. I don't really see that changing. She has a lot of, you know, unusual and, and to some extent disabling and pairing beliefs about food and the way that ingredients have to be combined, the way things have to be cooked. But she never, um, she never reaches the point where she's sort of like a danger to herself or not meeting her needs in some way. It's not in the way that conventionally people do. She certainly manages. She gets by. She's sort of created this life for herself that's that's actually workable. 
she does not view her experiences as psychiatric in any sense of the word. And what was it like just growing up with her as her daughter? Did you feel like she wasn't really able to parent you in the way that you needed? Or was it just unreliable? Or was it just a different way of, of being? I was pretty horrified by the impact that um, her experiences had on her lives and in, in many cases the way she ended up treating my brother and I because of beliefs that in some cases you know involved us and it was extremely extremely difficult and I found it you know very very frightening um, and absolutely a, you know, a, a sort of a, a space, a way of being that I never wanted to become true of me. You know, at various times she had these very involved beliefs, many of them involving the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, Opus Dei. And when I tried to intervene, anger is really is not a strong enough word to, to describe her reaction. It was sort of rage directed against me. Then a lot of that rage was taken out on me and in psychological ways and physical ways. And so it was very difficult. And it sounds like she was living with a lot of fear. And then that was what you grew up with was a huge amount of, of, of fear being in this situation. Absolutely fear. And I think there was a part of me already back, certainly in high school, that was very attracted to a much more analytic way of thinking about the world, philosophical in a more sort of traditionally logical sense. And so these sort of wild flights of fancy and imagination that sort of manifested in, in her beliefs and behaviors frightened me in a different way. It was like this loss of mental control. And so I think I very much, you know, went very strongly in the other direction. In a lot of my interactions with my mother raised ethical conflicts for me in a way that is often, even for me now, at odds with a lot of activist positions. And I think involuntary treatment is one of them. There was a point at which she had stopped eating any food. And I was living in Portland at the time. She was back in Idaho, and I had invited her to come out and stay with me over the winter break. I'd bought her a plane ticket and everything, and she never got on the plane. She never showed up. So I called her, and I asked why, and she basically said, you know, I'm so physically weak from not having eaten that I can't even, I can't even walk out to, to the bus on the corner. Um, I couldn't walk out to a taxi. So I was extremely, extremely concerned. And as it turned out, I think she weighed around 90 pounds at the time. And I didn't know what to do other than try to get some kind of help, which obviously she didn't want. She didn't want the police to come to her house. She didn't want psychiatric intervention. And I think it's cases like that where there was absolute de desperation on my part. I was very young. We didn't have any other family living in the same town as her. I didn't see any choice. What I did is I, I called the police that had sort of a psychiatric intervention team that they sent out to her house to check on her. 
So it's experiences like that that have really made me think differently about some of these issues and how incredibly complicated they are and the competing sort of ethical obligations of wanting to help somebody really, really caring about them, in fact and having so few um, alternatives available to you to, 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 to intervene. I certainly have talked to many people who will say, yes, I was involuntarily hospitalized and I'm grateful for it. And they'll focus on the positive things that came out of that experience. It got them off of the street. It interrupted a very, very dangerous state that they were in. It helped them to feel safe in their lives. And, and when I talk with them further, you know, there may be parts of their involuntary hospitalization that were traumatic and were violent, but for them, they feel that it was worth it. It was just part of what it took for them to get some help. And I think it's really important for us to respect that diversity, as you're saying, and realize that this issue is very complicated. The world that I would like to live in is that somehow we can provide this help and support or connect with people in, in some way that's going to really avoid harming them. Nev, at what point did you start to have your own experiences with altered states that might get called psychosis? I certainly, as soon as things started to change um, perceptually and in other ways for me, I did relatively quickly start to worry because of my mother, because of her experiences and because of what I'd, I'd witnessed. And so I do think that I... A, actively sought help, and B, did so very, very quickly compared to people who may not have grown up in a context where they'd already been exposed to, to these sorts of experiences. I think especially that early period sort of leading up to what would be considered more of a full-blown break can be, in some sense, even more difficult to describe than more... Um, overt, obvious um, symptoms or experiences. And the, the, the world in very subtle and sort of diffuse ways started to look and feel different to me. It was as if something had changed and I could not put my finger on what it was. I noticed that my imagination in a certain way started to become more powerful. So the more I started to worry that things looked different or if I started to think about an object, well, that looks a little bit like a snake or it looks like that house in the distance is on fire, then more and more over time, it was like by imagining something in a certain way that started to become more and more real. And I think that's a way that imagination doesn't normally operate, certainly for me, um, that had not been the case in the past. So it was like mental processes that normally one would have more control over, I would initially have control over, and then that would start to dissolve or slide away. What was happening in your life at that time? I mean, I know being in college is often really stressful for a lot of us. And were there things that you were responding to when you started to go into this slightly different experience of the world? I don't think so. I mean, so it was actually, you know, my first year in a PhD program in philosophy. So it was a lot of intense readings of the philosophical literature, a lot of which if we, you know, really think about it is, is is pretty out there in terms of common sense beliefs. A lot of what philosophers have historically proposed is sort of at, at odds with a lot of everyday assumptions. So I was very immersed in that intellectually. I'm not sure, you know, how directly connected that was, but that was the context. Otherwise, in terms of my personal life, 
there were the same ongoing issues with my mother, but it had already been that way for so many years that it wasn't like a new stressor. And so your imagination starts to take on a different quality and things are start to being a little bit out of control and something is going on in the world that's different. You can't quite put your finger on it. And then, and then what happened? Then I had experiences that were sort of even more out of my control. So, for example, I would look at objects and I felt like when I looked at objects, hard surfaces, walls, that by looking at them, I was decomposing them into tiny particles. And that became, like I said, more reflexive and immediate and and less controllable. And so was actually pretty alarming to me. Other experiences were this sort of objectification of my thoughts, by which I mean my thoughts started to seem more and more like objects, things that existed apart from me that I didn't have control over. And at times then they could take on what I would say quasi-auditory qualities that I don't think maps on to sort of a more mainstream idea of what voices are like. What was that like for the thoughts to take on an object quality that had a, an auditory dimension? So part of what was so confusing and alarming to me is that I couldn't express or communicate what it was like even to myself. They were experiences that defied boundaries between, um, for example, sort of perception and thought and imagination. So I couldn't tell whether I was imagining that things had a sound, whether I was directly perceiving them as having a sound. And in a way, that blurring of boundaries was what alarmed me and, and, and unnerved me the most. I actually wanted them to conform to some sort of recognizable experience that had already been described by other people. And a question I will often ask people at this point is what their sleeping was like, but it doesn't sound like you were sleep deprived. There was not a clear correlation between periods of not being able to sleep in these experiences. The experiences continued on much the same way even when I could sleep better. It sounds like it started to just kind of snowball for you. Right. There was this increasing alienation from my own thoughts and way in which my thoughts started to become more autonomous and external and object-like. And then that started to seg into this really unnerving fluidity in terms of sort of self-other boundaries. Like I felt like other people could access my thoughts or that my thoughts just existed out in space. Anybody could kind of come in contact with them. Anything I thought was game in terms of other people being able to perceive it and therefore it's this sense of incredible exposure. Like there is no privacy anymore. Those those boundaries that are normally there are just gone. And at what point did it start to really impair your going to school and taking care of yourself and your normal day-to-day life? I was sharing a lot of these experiences with friends of mine who were also graduate students in the same program, and and one of them reported these experiences to the faculty member who was my advisor, and she basically had me involuntarily suspended from my program immediately, like immediately, with, with no forewarning. Were you showing up for classes? Were you doing your work? Were you doing anything disruptive, or were you not performing as a student? 
I went through periods of what, I guess in retrospect, it's probably the easiest to describe as mutism, where I was just unable to talk. And in some cases, that did get me in trouble because I would have, let's say, an appointment with a faculty member and I was completely unable to speak at all. So I think that may have been perceived as alarming by some faculty, but I wasn't doing anything disruptive in the sense of acting out behaviorally or or causing problems, fighting with people, um, that sort of thing. But as soon as this faculty member heard about these experiences that you were having, you were involuntarily suspended from from school. Right. And at one point, I was threatened that if I showed up at school, I would be escorted off campus grounds by a security guard. But I was so confused by what was going on. I didn't understand the justification for that. So I went into school and went to my advisor's office and I had had a very close relationship with her prior to that, and she actually, she just refused to talk to me at all, just closed the door as I was standing there um, crying. So it was it was very, very actually traumatic to me, I think, to be treated that way by somebody who up until that point I'd really trusted and, and somebody who, in her own work as a, you know, as a feminist philosopher, had actually written pretty extensively about issues of disability and madness and gender and oppression. What happened next after that happened? That you, you left school and then you were in this treatment program? Or what happened? I was eventually reinstated. And by the time I was able to come back to school, after that whole suspension, I became extremely paranoid, and I don't actually think of that in the sense of sort of clinical paranoia or paranoia really associated with quote-unquote psychosis. It was more that, in fact, people were talking about me. In fact, I now had this reputation. People were afraid of me, etc. So I became very very withdrawn. I would often end up hiding in the bathroom stall in the department because I was so afraid of even walking by particular faculty, including um, my advisor, who then became my former advisor. So then, in, in a sense, I was behaviorally more out of sync with the normal flow of, of how a graduate student would, you know, occupying their, their position. I became very convinced that I could not think clearly, that I could not write clearly. So it became increasingly difficult for me to actually finish writing philosophy papers. I just became very insecure. So in the classes that I finished, I always got A's. I got very high grades on my papers, but then a lot of the time I just didn't finish papers. So that led after another about another year and a half to them just completely kicking me out of dismissing me permanently in a permanent way from the program. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Nev Jones. Nev is an interdisciplinary researcher in psychiatric anthropology and a postdoctorate fellow at Stanford University. She's the founder of Chicago Hearing Voices, co-director of the Lived Experience Research Network, and is diagnosed with schizophrenia and lives with experiences of altered states that would be called psychosis traditionally.
So these altered states experiences were really ongoing for you, and they caused this real difficulty with school. But then somehow you learned to manage them, or they got easier, or you were learning to live with them, because you did go on to have a very successful academic career, including now your postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford. In a lot of ways, I was extremely unlucky in terms of some of the experiences I've had of discrimination and prejudice outside of the mental health system and then really lucky within the mental health system. So I've certainly had you know really bad experiences like most people, but in terms of the main treatment program I was involved with and my primary therapist, very, very incredibly supportive environment. And I think my therapist in particular, she really believed in me and I really sort of credit her to a very large degree with keeping me on track to the point where eventually I could, you know, go back to graduate school. And And Nev, what was the role of medications in, in this? So I was you know, immediately, relatively immediately put on antipsychotics, initially a low dose. I think over about a three or four year period, I probably cycled through maybe 10 or 11 different antipsychotics, both newer and, and, and older ones. And, you know, I don't think that at any point they actually really helped me in a, in a substantive way. It's very difficult to figure out when I think medications might be maybe having some small positive impact because at any given time, you can't compare it to not being on them. But overall, um, I think that the impact was extremely minimal. And after you know three or four years, I, I pretty much just discontinued taking them completely. And in your life today, even as a successful scholar and the work that you're doing, you're still living with some of these experiences. Can you tell us about, about the things that you're living with today? So I, I, I still think that to me, um, these very, you know, attenuated or weakened boundaries between my own thoughts and other people's thoughts and, and the, the sense that people can access my thoughts directly so much of the time is to me really the most sort of impairing or disabling aspect of what I continue to experience. Um, so that that is ongoing. Um, and I think certainly developed strategies for dealing with that. Can you give us an example of, of that happening in your life recently and then how you handle it? You know, at any given time, I might be worried about what a friend thinks about me, worried about what an advisor thinks about me. And as, as soon as I start to worry about what they're thinking about me, I start to feel like, well, in fact, they're accessing all of my thoughts. They know everything that I'm doing. They know everything that I'm thinking. You know, I, I can't get rid of that. But what I can do is just sort of try to, I guess, cognitively reframe that experience self-talk in the sense of this isn't really happening. There's things that I can do to, to sort of reassure myself. Like if I know the person well enough, I can just ask them directly if this is going on. And usually a negative response on, on their part is, is reassuring to me, does sort of diminish the impact of, of the experience and my anxiety around it. And it sounds like the therapist that you met was really helpful in also helping you to live with these these things that were going on. Right. And I think just the just sort of the degree of support and faith 
she had in me. And also, I think initially, just being able to, to talk to somebody who in no way sort of judged the experiences I was having, um, was able to listen to these long and in-depth and, and, and a lot of the time very sort of um, frantic descriptions of what was going on, you know, full of, of fear um, and not react to that, not herself be afraid of that was, was extremely helpful, especially, you know, a long period of that because, you know, years of, of relatively intense therapy, which nowadays um, most people um, entering the mental health system don't get. And one of the threads through what we've been talking about is what it is that your mom went through and goes through also doesn't really fit some of the kind of typical frames that we put around these experiences. And then also what you are going through is also very unique and individual. And so you've developed a real appreciation for the diversity of what we see as, as madness and how each person has a different personal story and personal relationship. And that has come in a lot to your work now as a scholar and a researcher. Tell us about the Lived Experience Research Network. As an organization, um, our, our focus is really on both bridging advocacy and research, which often, especially in the United States, are really separate worlds. And then also really, um, I think, really trying to think about what it means and what sort of difference it makes when people who have direct experience of, you know, the phenomena or conditions or diagnoses in question are actually involved in, in theorizing them. So instead of seeing people as informants or objects of study, actually collaborating with them and developing theories about the experiences together rather than just seeing them as a data sample. Exactly. So that gives them autonomy, not just over sort of expressing their own personal experiences, but in really thinking about the structure and of those experiences and, and theorizing them in, in a way that extends beyond their own individual experience, which I think is a really important part of um, empowerment in, in a larger sense, not just personal empowerment. So, for example, we use this phrase, hearing voices, which actually is a, is a very commonly used clinical term. And for a lot of us, you know, if we're struggling with demons, for example, or we're experiencing the presence of spirit guides or angels, hearing voices doesn't really get at the fullness or the richness of what it is that we're, we're going through. Right. And I think that there's a huge range of, of what people in fact experience that all ends up getting labeled voices or, or auditory hallucinations. And I think to me, one of the most sort of poignant um, research experiences I've had um, recently has been going out and, and doing focus groups in community mental health settings, typically with clients or service users who are very, very marginalized um, and living in poverty and um, have been in the system a long time. And I'll start to ask questions about people's experiences of voices. And people will say, well, I don't think that I you know, hear voices, here's what I experience, you know, and I'll say, well, actually, that's, you know, a lot of people will describe that as voices, will call that voices. And then the, the, the feedback I get, and, and sometimes quite emotional feedback is, you know, my God, I thought there was something wrong with me, because it's almost like I wasn't even really properly mad. 
important. So people themselves will think, well, if I don't have this sort of external voice that sounds exactly like a person, then I'm not legitimately um, hearing voices. And then because there's no alternative sort of clinically or in terms of what they have been exposed to in their interactions with providers, they just think there's something really wrong with me. It's not even this, you know, identifiable thing. It's just there's no name for it and maybe nobody else experiences it. There are certainly people who, when they talk about having like visions or visual hallucinations, voices or auditory hallucinations, they are really talking about explicitly auditory or visual phenomena. But I think a lot of the time there are people for whom that's really not quite true. And that doesn't actually make it any less impactful, any less, in some cases, disabling, any less meaningful. But it doesn't sort of fit into that box of clearly mapping onto the sound of somebody talking or the way that one would experience looking around in, in a location and, and, and looking at sort of one's surroundings. I'm thinking of someone that I worked with who was tormented by what he described as a demon. And the most scary thing that had happened to him wasn't that he was hearing this demon belittling him and attacking him. The most scary thing that happened to him was when he was slammed down on the floor of the shower that he was in and held down by this demon. And it was very much a, a physical entity or presence in his life. It was more than just an auditory phenomenon that he was that he was struggling with. And his experience was to be confined by the demon. The demon was around and, and could come at any moment to do this very physical act to him. And that was how he experienced the impairment. And I think that if I had talked with him about voices, I don't think he would have really been able to connect with his demon experience. But as soon as we talked about demons, and I talked about some of my own experiences with demons and some of the other people that I've worked with with demons, then we start to have a a conversation. And for him, so much of that framework was biblical and Christian and spiritual. And, and so our conversation went very much in the direction of how his religious faith and how his spiritual practice was the pathway for him moving forward. It wasn't necessarily about me trying to weave a story around his trauma or his background or his childhood or anything like that. It was really following his own narrative of what it was that he was going through and how it was that he was coping through it day to day, which was with the Bible and with his faith in God. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's this real diversity of experiences in terms of just the structure of what they're like, whether they, you know, sort of involve all the senses or all these different forms of perception and, and thought and imagination. And then there is this whole explanatory framework or the way in which the person kind of creates meaning out of the experience that is equally, if not more important. And that can absolutely involve very different assumptions about the nature of reality, meaning if we are comparing, for instance, a, a trauma-based framework that sort of is grounded in everyday things that people experience that are in the news all the time to, you know, alien abduction, which is which is very different and sort of outside, operating outside some of those more everyday assumptions or spiritual and religious frameworks that can take all kinds of different forms. 
um, depending on the individual. And that's really important to to pay attention to and, and to take seriously. I think there's a tendency to try and bring it back down to reality and explain it in terms of consensus scientific reality. Okay, you had this trauma, it caused this developmental impact, and then you developed a voice as a way of coping with the trauma or as the impact or residue of the trauma. And I think that if we focus too much on bringing it back to reality, we lose track of the fact that this reality that we're in is culturally bound, is specific to one society, one history, one cultural framework, one Western scientific way of looking at things. And actually, a lot of people are experiencing what would be called paranormal or parapsychological realms that are connected to the world's spiritual traditions. And I know in my own struggles and my own discovery process, yes, I definitely see my own abuse and violence and trauma that happened to me being part of why I have altered states experiences. But I also feel that I'm just having spiritual experiences and religious experiences that can't be reduced to some psychological development uh, trajectory that actually I'm I really am in contact with other realities I really am moving beyond the ordinary consensus reality frame I do have a spiritual religious view of my life and I think that what's meaningful is that it that is what I use to explain and move my life forward that's what I use to empower myself that's what I use to make sense of my reality and so what I want from a researcher what I want from a therapist or I want from someone who's learning is to meet me on my own terms rather than trying to translate my symptoms or my unusual experience into some of their framework and their psychological or developmental or Western cultural set of values and assumptions. I, I think it's a sort of a problem in research and in clinical practice, um, as well as in some parts of the you know, consumer survivor movement and, and sort of peer support settings is that there's too much of a fixation on a, a single approach, a single way of thinking about these experiences. And sort of the assumption that that is what ultimately is really going to help people the most um, instead of taking seriously that for any given individual, a very, very different set of things, set of processes may be what helps that individual, what decreases distress and also just what is more meaningful in the context of, of their life and their own goals and their own like yeah, sense of spirituality. Studying the Bible may be meaningful to them. Meditating may be meaningful to them. Studying philosophy may be meaningful to them. Everybody is going to be different. And it sounds like your own way of, of approaching the altered states experiences that you go through has a real cognitive kind of approach. You, you tend to talk through your beliefs and you get a reality check from the people around you. What, what is your own explanatory system for your own altered states? Or maybe that's a work in progress. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think really because so much of my sort of early training and educational background was in, in philosophy, I think one of my ways of dealing with experiences is really just to try to deconstruct them in this more philosophical or phenomenological way. And like that in and of itself maybe gives me a sense of control and a sense of understanding, which is maybe just another form of control, which I find really helpful. And I definitely don't think that's, that's true for, for everyone. 
So, and that doesn't necessarily align with a particular spiritual or philosophical framework. It's more a way of, of approaching them. As part of the Lived Experience Research Network, you've done a number of different projects like doing a huge questionnaire survey, interviewing people in depth about their own experiences that might be called voices. And you've really helped to emphasize this diversity of, of what it is that people go through. Why do you think that it's so important that clients or people who are have been patients or who are themselves people who experience these altered states, why do you think it's so important for people with that lived experience to themselves be the ones who are doing the research and in control of the academic study that goes on around it? I think when you've had these experiences yourself, you're sort of forced in a sense, to acknowledge how incredibly complicated they are and the, the extent to which they don't fit a lot of the clinical language. They don't fit these sort of clinical boxes. So the, the Hearing Voices questionnaire we did is actually a really good example. It was a collaboration with um, a research team at Durham University. Um, the project is called Hearing the Voice. And, you know, we discussed the questions together. I was in the UK at the time, and, and the two questions I was the most invested in um, and really wanted to be included were, how is this, how is your experience of voices different from hearing the voice of somebody standing or sitting in the same room as you? And how is it different from your own thoughts? And... I think the reason why I'm very oriented towards those type of questions is because I realize having experienced um, these things myself is that very often it's in between. It's not like simply hearing or attending to one's own thoughts, and it's not necessarily exactly like somebody being in the same room as you talking to you. And it's really, really difficult to articulate, but once you start to push people in that direction, you start to move outside this really limiting language and these these limiting um, clinical ways of establishing boundaries between types of experience. And I think that if you were coming at it from the outside as, you know, as a researcher who, who hasn't ever had those experiences, it's not obvious the extent to which a lot of that language and the concepts behind the language just doesn't work. It doesn't fit the experiences. Nev, we're just about out of time. Give us the contact information for you and the Lived Experience Research Network and also Chicago Hearing Voices, which you're one of the founders of. The easiest way to contact me is uh, via my email address, which is just nev at learnnetwork.org, L-E-R-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.org. Our website is www.learnnetwork.org or L-E-R-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.org. Nev Jones, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thanks, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Nev Jones. She's an interdisciplinary researcher in psychiatric anthropology doing her postdoctorate fellowship at Stanford University. She's the founder of Chicago Hearing Voices, co-director of the Lived Experience Research Network, and she's diagnosed with schizophrenia and experiences and lives with altered states of consciousness that would be traditionally called psychosis. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in.
You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>